Shortly after the destruction of the World Trade Towers on 9-11, a group of people spontaneously gathered to view the rubble and to mourn. Their emotions were raw, their sorrow was real, and they stood in this huddle of strangers drawn spontaneously by this tragedy. The whole thing, as you can imagine, was a bit awkward, like going to a funeral where everyone knows the deceased, but no one knows each other. And as might be expected in such a situation, everyone wanted to do something, but no one had any idea what that was. And so someone finally suggested that, why don't we sing? And they started off with a Broadway tune, New York, New York. Now let me ask you, could you sing that without music? <laughs> They couldn't either. <laughs> it got started and fizzled out. They tried another one. Started and fizzled out. Another. They couldn't figure anything out. Then somebody threw all political correctness aside and began to sing that song that we just sang. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And they carried it through to the end. The whole group. The only song that they could find that they all knew together. Amazing Grace, written in the 18th century by John Newton, is probably the most well-known hymn in the English language. But how I wish that more people would hear this familiar hymn for the first time. I said that purposefully. Would hear this familiar hymn for the first time. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. Those words were not written by a popular songwriter who wanted to make some money, some quick cash, and just poured it out. These are the words of a man who's telling you his life story, his whole experience in those words. Young John Newton lost his mother at age six. His father remarried fairly quickly, but his second mother had no concern for his moral standing. And by age 11, he was already being sent off to sea with his father, who cared apparently nothing for his son. Hardened by these circumstances, young John Newton quickly became an evil man by everyone's estimation, known for his blasphemous and licentious lifestyle. In reflecting on his past, John Newton once said, I know not that I have ever since met so daring a blasphemer. He was involved in the slave trade, which he later described as a most iniquitous, cruel, and oppressive enterprise. He never forgot that he had a hand in it. Once. His tombstone describes him in his own self-descriptive words as a libertine and an infidel. A libertine. He lived how he chose to live. No sin was off limits to John Newton. And an infidel. He hated God and he ran away from him as fast as he could. Mired in this state of sin, John Newton was beyond hope. He was utterly blinded by his moral depravity. But what John Newton could not do, God began to accomplish 
Through a series of disastrous events, Newton became the virtual slave of an African leader on an island off the coast of Sierra Leone, West Africa. John seemed destined to die of starvation and maltreatment there. But February 1747, a ship passed by and the captain saw some smoke on the island and decided on a whim to, to, to land there, to anchor there on that little island off the coast of Sierra Leone. This ship was from England. This ship was half an earth away from home. But the captain of that ship just so happened to know John Newton's father. He set John Newton free, put him on his ship, and started for the journey back home. But while they were at sea, a violent storm hit, and John's cabin filled with water. You imagine that? Your cabin is filling with seawater. He's getting out, trying to survive, to go up to the deck. But as he's heading up the ladder to get to the deck of the ship and to help, the captain says to him, go, go back down and get a knife. John listened to the command. He came just down the ladder. The man that went up the ladder in his place got to the top of the ladder and was blown out to sea, overboard, never to be seen again. John got the knife, went back up to the deck. This was 3 a.m., and he worked until noon the next day, took an hour of sleep, then was given the helm of the ship, and till midnight the next night, he was alone at the helm of that ship. And through all of these events, something cracked open in the heart of John Newton. John Newton, at the helm of that ship, began to pray. John Newton began to pray. He found a Bible on board before the journey was over and began to study it earnestly. Of course, it was ultimately God who was seeking John Newton, as Newton acknowledges in the hymn, Amazing Grace. John landed safely in England, came to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ for his sins. And this foul, blasphemous, infidel sailor became a pastor of a church, a second church, and in those two churches served God's people for 44 years. Newton was transformed by Jesus Christ. Now, who has a problem with that story? <clears throat> I, no one has a problem with that story. I've never met anyone who had any difficulty hearing it. It's a heartwarming account of the amazing grace of God. Good for John Newton. He found peace. He changed. Wonderful story. You know what? Let's even sing the hymn. It's got a great story behind it. But there's more to it than that. What happened to John Newton must happen to you. A spiritual transformation, a spiritual rebirth brought about by Jesus Christ is something that you must experience. 
We are accustomed in our culture to think that only the worst sinners need to undergo a radical transformation. It may be a common notion to think that we are okay just as we are as long as we try to be good and don't do anything terribly bad, but that is a notion that is never found in the Word of God. God anxiously longs to enjoy a real and vibrant relationship with people. But he tells us in the Bible that the only way for that to happen is for a radical transformation to overwhelm us. That transformation is laid out for us in the Bible, and I'd like to turn to one place where it's beautifully depicted, and that is Ephesians chapter 2. If you have a Bible that there, or you can look on the text with someone, that would be great. Otherwise, I'll just read it as we go through. But Ephesians chapter 2. And before we get into this text as such, by the way, let me say that it explains what happened to John Newton. It explains what must happen to us. But let me say as we read it, we have to understand that this book was initially written to people who had already experienced that spiritual transformation. And so you'll notice as I lay this out and as I describe this, we'll turn it that way just a bit. For the purposes at hand, I want to develop the text without assuming that experience. And so we'll proceed. But we notice first of all in Ephesians chapter 2, beginning at verse 1, this declaration. We are born into a state of spiritual death. We are born into a state of spiritual death. Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. What does that mean? What does it mean to be dead in transgressions and sins. It means simply that we are born into a state of spiritual lifelessness. We are born with an innate bent toward sin. No one needs to teach us to sin. We sin naturally. And our natural bent towards sin thrives in the sinful environment into which we are born. Verse 2, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. That's a mouthful. But often, people will grab half of these verses and not the other half. They will take verse 2 and say, there is an environment of sin into which we are born. But we must take verse 1 as well. There is a natural bent in our own heart, and the two work together. Verse 2 says that we, as sinners, dead spiritually, follow the ways of the world. That is, we live in sync with the times. And the times are bent against God. Secondly, we follow the ruler of the kingdom of the air, you notice there in verse 2. This is a reference to Satan, the air being the spiritual realm. Satan tirelessly presses his agenda, and we find it very natural to respond. One commentator said it so well, warning us this way, though the devil doesn't make you do it, he's got you dancing to his tune. You only think you're free. We are on a leash that ends in the hand of Satan. There's a degree, a feeling of freedom that we have. But in fact, our sin nature responds to this world that he orchestrates to a large degree. And so the Bible says that we are, verse 2, disobedient. It translates a Semitic expression which, says that our, which means our characteristic orientation to God is to disobey him. 
In fact, as verse 3 goes on to say, all of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. In other words, by our very nature, we are oriented to fulfill our own self-serving cravings, longings, thoughts in opposition to God. Now, no one here would have any problem putting that probably onto John Newton. Following his cravings and his longings and his thoughts that were against God. <clears throat> but notice that the text says in verse 3 that all of us live that way. All of us. There's no exceptions. Not just the John Newtons of the world. All of us. Now wait a minute. Somebody says, I I'm not perfect. I'm not perfect, but I try my best. I don't hate God. I do good things. Well, the point is not that we are incapable of doing anything good as far as others see it. Nor is the problem inherently in following our cravings, desires, and thoughts. Really, there's nothing wrong with following cravings, desires, and thoughts if they're good. If they're meant for the right thing. But herein lies the problem. The Bible teaches that you were created to love God with all of your heart. God longs for people to enter into such a relationship with Him. He is the great joy of this universe. He is your soul's ultimate satisfaction. And knowing this, God sets down commands. <clears throat> Why? Well, just take a human relationship of a loving father with his children. I trust that I am that with my children, and so I lay down some laws, some rules some commands, because I love them. Not to make them miserable, but because I want their protection and their development. I care for them, and so there are some things they can't do, and there are other things they must do. And in like manner, God lays down <clears throat> moral rules, which steer us to a right relationship to Him. So we have this infinite God, the source of our soul's ultimate satisfaction. And he says to us, here is how to know me. Here is how to walk in fellowship with me. And by our very natural bent, we say no. We go a different way. So we become characteristically disobedient to God. We get angry. We gossip. We lie. We become bitter, we cheat, we covet, we lust, we dishonor our parents. In a direct and purposeful failure to love God with all of our hearts. Paul wrote to Titus in 3.3, said this, at one time you, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. <clears throat> Maybe you're not convinced yet. And you say, you know, I still think I'm a pretty good person. Now let's just remember one thing, that God is a perfect God of absolute holiness. And I would offer this challenge this week. If that's where you are, you think you're pretty good before God, I would challenge you 
Don't just take my word for it. Just try this week not to sin. Work really hard at it. And try not to sin. Try not to do what Paul says here in Titus 3.3. Try not to envy anyone or to hate anyone this week. Try not to lust. Try not to long for something more than you love God. And then let's talk next week. Well, so what? What does it matter? We're sinners. The end of verse 3 says, Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That's the so what in a sense. This makes us, this sinful bent that's in us to disobey God makes us objects of wrath. That means that we are objects of God's anger against sin. God is an infinite and holy God, therefore His judgment against sin is perfectly precise and is immeasurably severe. By nature, you notice, that we are objects of His wrath. By nature, we follow the passions of the flesh, and thus by nature, we are objects of God's just anger against us. This is a little heavy, isn't it? But if we're going to be honest with the text of Scripture, we take verses 1 through 3 at face value and we say this is what God indicates about our natural setting. It's not very good news. Well, it might be better than you think. If you went to a doctor, the doctor said, I'm very sorry to inform you, you have a terrible disease. You can't feel it, you don't know it, but if you don't do something about it, you've got about a month to live. Is that good news or bad news? Well, there's hope, hope in there, isn't there? It's very bad news that I have this disease, but by letting the doctor speak and submitting to the regimen for healing, there's hope that I may be healed. And so we learn we are born into a state of spiritual death. That is our diagnosis. But we notice, secondly, beginning at verse 4, we can be made alive, spiritually alive, in Christ. Verse 4, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. Remember, these are those who are on the other side of this transformation. Ephesians 2, 1-3 teaches that by nature we are sinners who respond to our sinful environment and disobey God, resulting in our just condemnation. But there's a but here in verse 4. That but is the point on the why in the road. You've got to go down the one side or the other side. So some of you, maybe I'm going to leave behind right here at this point. I hope not. But let me describe to you the why in the road. You're going to have to travel with me from here out, or you're going to have to go down the other path. If you say, I am not a sinner, I'm okay the way I am, then it's like being in that, uh, before that doctor and saying, I don't have a disease. Now, Jesus addressed people who think that way because all of us do somewhere down the road. And Jesus said this, Luke 5.31, He said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So if you think you don't need Jesus, you don't need rescue from sin, 
there's nothing that can be done to help you. Just frankly and honestly. And Jesus knew there would be people like that. And so he says, I did not come for people like that. People who think they're okay on their own, they don't need me. Well, they do, but you've got to see that. So if there's no sickness, if there's no sin, then there's no need for rescue. But if you say, I will, I will hold to this, I am a sinner. Let me ask it this way. Do you have a sense in your heart, yes, I'm a sinner? I know that I fail God. I don't love him with all my heart. I don't do the things that he commands me to do for my good. I fall short of his holy standard and of his love. I fear that this indictment of his wrath applies to me. Then look again at verse 4 and 5. Because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. You're not going to find any more hopeful words than that on this earth. But, it's a crucial word of distinction. Here's where you are. However, now, did you, does that hit you? Remember what verse 3 said? We are by nature the objects of God's wrath. He is angry with our sin. However, he's merciful. He's gracious. There's a cure. Those with whom God is angry, he loves. And this superabundant love of God matches another attribute, and that is his mercy, verse 4. So moved by love and mercy for sinners, God made us alive. What was the original state of the Ephesians? Verse 1, dead in sin. What happened to them? They were made alive. Spiritual rebirth. They were delivered from the natural state of spiritual death and made spiritually alive. What did they do to deserve this transformation? The end of verse 5 says nothing. It is by grace you have been saved. What's the result of this grace of God? Verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That's a hard concept to unpack, and I'm not going to take the time to do so here, but suffice it to say, this spiritual transformation is only possible by means of a spiritual transformation through the Lord Jesus Christ. It is only through the work that Christ has done, which we've sung about here this morning, that this kind of transformation is possible. Now, what is the design of it? Why does God work this way? What is he up to? Verse 7, in order that, you see there a sense of purpose. Here's the reason. In order that, verse 7, in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. God tells us here why he chooses to change people. To transform them. I'm not asking what motivated God. We've already established that. What is it? What motivates Him? It's His mercy. It's His grace. That's what motivates Him. What I'm asking here is what is His design? What is He up to? Ultimately, what does He want to do? This is it, verse 7. He, uh, in order that in the coming ages He might show the incomparable riches of His grace expressed in His kindness to us in Christ Jesus. 
I would suggest that that's all that he's ever, in one sense, intended to do in heaven and in our relationship with him is to show us the incomparable riches of his love and his grace and his mercy. God's intention is that we will be awed by his grace forever and ever. Chapter 1 bears that out very clearly. Why is that good? Why is it good to be awed by the mercy and grace and love of God forever and ever? Because God created us for that purpose, to love Him with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. And heaven will be a place where we will do just that. Now, there's one thing that could potentially taint God's design. There's one real problem at this point. One thing that could limit or erode the eternal display of the riches of His grace. What is that one thing? Let me illustrate it before we go to the text. There's a young woman who is caught in an apartment fire. And she is burned on her face. Disfigured terribly tragic event. She's unmarried, and because of her looks, she remains unmarried and very, finds it very hard even to get a job. But she works two jobs night and day, scraping together the money that will pay for the surgery, but the costs of the surgeries keep rising. She's unable to get insurance. As she puts the money away, she simply cannot make it. And right when she gets to about a halfway point, She falls very ill, loses her jobs. And in that condition, she looks absolutely hopeless. A doctor hears of her story, comes into her room, and offers to pay for the second half of her surgery. She is restored and, in God's grace, gains health, and her looks are returned as far as possible to normal. And she goes on to live a normal life. She's married. She holds a good job. Now, let's stop there. Do we praise the doctor for his mercy? We better. We should. He does not have to do that. That's his mercy to give her that money and to allow her that surgery. But do we praise her? I would. It's amazing the work that she did to bring together half of the money for this surgery and how how much she went through. We praise her because she contributed to her rescue. Using that as an example, if there is anything in us that deserves God's grace, we would certainly praise God for His grace through all eternity, but we would always be worthy of that grace to some degree, and to that degree, we would spend eternity praising and rejoicing in ourselves rather than in the fullness of God. That is why verses 8 through 10 are here. That very problem. Now notice in that context then what it says. What is God doing, verse 7? What is His design? That we would understand the depth, the incomparable riches of His grace throughout all eternity, that we we would sense it and realize it and taste it and grow in it. Here's the one thing that can keep us from that, is if we gain the praise for it. And so he says, verse 8, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. 
And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. This spiritual transformation comes by faith. That means it comes by throwing your trust wholly upon God. Notice here that it says this is not of yourselves. None of it. Not the faith, not the grace, not the salvation. None of this finds its source in you. Salvation is the gift of God through and through. That's the positive side. Verse 9 is the negative side. It's by grace, negatively verse 9, it is not by works. That's a problematic phrase to many people who view themselves as Christian. It is not by works. God's transforming grace never comes by means of human effort. Self-righteous doers of good deeds go to hell, while transformed sinners are delivered from wrath. Why? Verse 9, it is not by works so that no one can boast. The pride that leads human beings to reject God in the first place will be absent in heaven. The Ephesians were not like that woman with a disfigured face working their hardest to rescue themselves. They were spiritual corpses. They did not merely require correction and adjustment. They needed spiritual transformation, a resurrection from the dead. So where do works fit in this? It is not by works so that no one can boast. Where do works fit into this? Do we just live however we choose? Well, remember John Newton? He lived however he chose. He lived in depravity and wickedness. But there was a day that came when God rescued him from his sin. How then did John Newton live? Verse 10. For we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus. There's spiritual transformation. A recreation created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. God has a design from beginning to end, and He prepared in advance good works for us to do, not to gain our salvation, verses 8 and 9, but to respond to our salvation. 4, verse 10. This is a further defense of the idea that our works are completely separate from our salvation. God gives resurrection life in Christ to people He designed not to be saved by good works, but to be saved for the purpose of doing good works. The transformation of our actions by God's grace is part of His grace. We are born in a state of spiritual death. We can be made alive in the Lord Jesus Christ through faith. Now, you may not be in the eyes of others as evil as John Newton. But make no mistake, if you have not experienced spiritual rebirth through Jesus Christ, You are dead in your sins. And you must come to Christ by faith.
Leave the good works behind. They're only going to get in the way. Repent of your sin and walk into the loving arms of Jesus. Now, we're not going to ask you to do anything here if that fits you. We're not going to ask you to walk to the front or to sign a card or to do anything externally like that. In fact, honestly, I have purposefully left out much of the detail of what you must trust to come to transformation life in Jesus Christ. It's been implicitly stated throughout our day together here in song, and of course is the basis of the text that's before us. But that's not the point here this morning for the time that we have here. But I ask simply, do you have a sense in your heart that there's something that's wrong between you and God? I tell you, that's not the way that He wants it to be. That can be changed. So I would say, talk to someone after the service today. I am in a diseased state, obviously, this morning. I'm going to stay right here so nobody has to talk to me unless you want to. But if you'd like to come up, I'll be here after the service. If you want to dare that much, I'm, I feel all right, but my voice is just in bad shape. But there might be somebody that brought you here today. You could talk to them. And they could point you to what precisely Jesus has done to pay the penalty of your sin and to make for reconciliation with God. There are Bible studies for women on Tuesday morning and Thursday night studies for adults. You can find a place. But I would strongly encourage you to seek the Lord today. To discern what He wants you to do. If you ever touch base with us as a church, you call here this week and ask for some guidance or you talk to somebody that you're with, we will never pressure you to join this church. In fact, we wouldn't even want you to yet at this point. That's not an issue at all. But we would be thrilled to share with you in detail how you can know what Christ has done and how you can enter a transforming relationship with the Savior. Jesus Christ. As we think on that, let's stand together. And let's turn, again, I don't know if we have it. Can we put on the amazing grace? We can't. Okay, it has, it has evaporated. What is the number? 343. Thank you. If you need a hymnal, 343. Let's sing those words again. Let's think of the experience of John Newton and of our own experience of transformation. Maybe you're thinking about that, or maybe that has taken place in your life. Let's sing in response, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. 343 in a hymnal.